Ladies and gents, welcome to the first episode of the brand new podcast series, Africa Made, brought to you by Dow Athletics. My name is Yannick Gaoma, and I'm the CCO of Dow Athletics, and I come with uh, my partners in crime. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Yannick Kreis. I am the co-founder and CEO of Dow Athletics, as well as a global apparel and fashion entrepreneur. It's uh, amazing to be here with you guys on this, on this journey. Hi, guys. My name is Francois Uchard. I'm a professional rugby player and lifestyle entrepreneur. Awesome. Cool. So now that we've gotten the intros out of the uh, intros out of the way, let's get down to business. So Africa Made is a special project for myself, Yanni and Francois. We've come together as a trio to create the podcast series that will show the game behind the game. All three of us are obsessed with sport, but more than that, we're obsessed with the business of sport and how it intersects with culture, entertainment and technology. Through Africa Made, you will meet athletes and personalities, both retired and active, who have risen from the continent and gone on to leave a global trail with incredible milestones. For our debut episode, we have one of the greatest athletes to ever come out of SA. Like, for real, for real. No jokes. This man needs no introduction, but I'd be remiss if I didn't put you on to game. So let me put you on to game. This legend enjoyed a 15-year stellar rugby career. He made his debut for the Golden Lions and went on to play for the Blue Bulls, the Stormers, and Toulon in France. He earned 124 test caps for the Springboks and went on to win the 2007 World Cup, Rugby World Cup with them. He was crowned as the International Rugby Board Player of the Year in 2007. Ladies and gents, we are talking about none other than Brian Habano. Welcome to the show, Brian. Nick, thanks for having me. Hopefully, um, the somber mood that Yanni and Francois are in at the moment uh, can be uplifted. I'm not quite sure if you've given them Red Bulls. Um, uh, extremely honored to, you know, to be on the first episode of, of Africa Made. Uh, you know, really privileged to, to be here and, and thank for a, a very kind introduction. Uh, looking forward to, to the next hour or so. Brian, my friend, uh, it's nice to see you again. Let's start from the beginning. Tell us about your childhood. Where did you grow up and all your fond memories from growing up? Yeah, okay. Um, geez, I think it's, it's nice to not see you um, with your shirt off around an open-top car of some sort or in, any, in a supercar of some sort. Um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, really great to be here. I think, yeah, much like, well, not much like many South Africans, you know, I'm for those that don't know, named after Brian Robson and Gary Bailey, two Manchester United footballing legends. So growing up in the then part of South Africa, you know, was sort of wanting to become the next South African export into the English Premiership, you know, from a footballing perspective to, to make a name for myself. And then, like for many South Africans, a, a turning point came in, in 95 when South Africa got to experience one of the most iconic moments in sport you know ever witnessed i was a, a 12 year old boy who never really hadn't really played rugby in any way or form uh, at primary school and got exposed to a rather beautiful game that because of various role players the likes of Franco pinard joel stransky chester williams and nelson Mandela, um and the rest of that 95 springbok team you know brought a nation together and you know you had a 12-year-old boy sitting in the stands at Ellis Park when Joel Stransky kicked that drop kick over. You know, Francois Penner got handed the, the little cup called Bull by Nelson Mandela. 
And, you know, those famous words of it wasn't for the 60,000 people in the stadium, it was for 48 million South Africans. Got a 12-year-old boy sitting in those stands, you know, witnessing those epic scenes, those iconic scenes, uh, inspired to to want to take up the game of rugby. And, you know, having got given opportunities to go to some great schools and, you know, be installed with foundations, you know, from my parents, to witness that moment, to have had that sort of watershed opportunity and you know seeing the power of sport firsthand and in you know, in real life was something that changed my life forever um it didn't quite start out though as as, as i would have loved uh, my first ever game of rugby at king edward the seventh school which is a strong english school not quite the paul gym or paul Riss and you know all, all the big schools like cray that you know france would know really well the rugby schools but you know had a, had a strong rugby presence first ever game of rugby for the under 14 g side as a very minute 48 kilograms scrum off. Uh, wasn't quite how I thought the journey was going to start out, but nonetheless, it was one that yeah laid laid the foundations of an entry point into playing this beautiful game. And you know, along the way, never you know never stopped dreaming and and hoping to one day emulate what that team of '95 did. I was actually about to touch on a few of those points. Um, how you got into rugby, first of all, and when did you realize that you could actually pursue rugby as a career? Oh, Francois, yeah, very late, eh? Um, just, I mean, even when I was, was 21, you know, I played three years of Vodacom Cup rugby, you know, still playing a bit for Rao and you know, a very uncertain time period. Got back from the SAA or the Under-21 Rugby World Cup in in Scotland where we came up third, but, you know, had a really phenomenal tournament and you know, sort of got back, you know, was, again, at another watershed moment in my very young career, we have got an opportunity to, go, to potentially go to Australia and follow in the footsteps of someone like Clyde Rathbone. Uh, and it was just very uncertain of, you know, can I actually make rugby a career? You know, start engaging with the Lions and got to sit down with Heine Kamea, um, you know, in that Curry Cup season. And he sort of dealt with me what his plans and his ambitions were for the Bulls. Um, you know, at that same time, Jake White selected me as a, Unknown, having never played Super Rugby before, 21-year-old, to, to join the, the incoming tour of the, the then Tri-Nations, where you know South Africa famously beat New Zealand when Maurice Joubert scored three tries, and then, yeah, beat Australia in Durban. And, yeah, that famous Victor Matfield tip, and, you know, tip over and score. And my role models, you know, the, the Brayton Pulses, the Brent Russells, who was my first roommate, Percy Montgomery, who had no clue who I was when I walked into, into the hotel for the first time. So, yeah, it was only until about my late teens, very early 20s, that I realized um, that rugby, you know, could potentially become the dream and day job that, that I wanted to do since I was a 12-year-old boy. That's awesome, man. So correct me if I'm wrong. You started off playing outside center. You moved to scrum off and then you ended up on the wing. When did it all started making sense? And when did you realize that wing is going to be the position for you? I'm going to correct you because you are wrong. So I started out as a scrum off. Yeah, I was, I was 19 years old. You know, again, very uncertain and not quite sure where my figure is going as a scrum off. We had the likes of a oh, Nicholas A. Uh, Trying to think, if there's a Benny Nokia, there was there was quite a Topis Lagrange who was at the line, so there was there was quite a hindrance in terms of you know where I was going with scrum off, and I actually got a lot bigger. I had a very late growth spurt, and Eugene Yellow sat me down. And he said, "Listen, you know, he sees a different potential in me. Uh, you know, he really thinks I should potentially move to outside centre." And I was like, Oof, 
that's not the most positive thing, you know, the senior backline coach of a union should be saying if, you know, as a scrum off, you're wanting to make it and he's telling you, well, I don't think you, you know, uh, I think you should maybe move. And, you know, we're sort of going through that process. You know, you made me study center play, write the essay on someone I believe, you know, was the best at that time in 2002, I think, uh, Brian, Brian O'Driscoll. And yeah, went from playing scrum off to center, you know, had a really great you know, year and a half playing center and, you know, so much so that I actually thought I'd become better than Maurice Joubert. And as luck may have it, I got injured just before the 21 World Cup, played a couple of games of center, was supposed to be playing with my now longtime friend, but a guy who I really got to know well, Bainan Tullifield in the centers, ended up playing wing, you know, had quite a few games, you know, came back to the Lions and had a really good run at center where I scored like 10 tries in 10 games for the Lions and that carried up. And got selected on the end of year tour for the Springboks and really thought I was going to make my debut at centre. And as things have it, both Jean de Villiers and Brayton Paulson got injured against England, on which I was on the bench for my first ever day, my first ever cap for the Springboks, and had to go on as a wing. I managed to score a try with my first touch of the ball in, in international rugby against the then world champions England at the Homer Rugby Twickenham. And it was a pretty special start and, you know, got given the number 11 jersey the following week in Scotland. And as I say, the, the rest is history. So, yeah, probably still believe I you know, could have done a lot more at centre. But if you look at the likes of uh, Jean de Villiers, Jacques Ferry, David Barry, Maurice Joubert, um, a lot of guys that played centre in the time that I was playing for the Springboks. Yeah, you know, playing on the wing was not something I ever thought I was destined for. But... You know, 124 test matches later, well, 123 on the wing. Um, I'm probably not complaining. Amazing story. So my career took a similar twist. Um, so I went to school um, in Stellenbosch at Paul Ruiz Gymnasium. Um, I then first year after school, I played for the junior Springboks in the World Cup. And... I then went to the Western Province Academy in Stellenbosch, where I played under 19, under 21, and senior Curry Cup. And the first year after that is when I signed my first professional deal, and that's when I signed for the Bulls. Um, people said I was going to be stupid to sign at the Bulls because I'm going to sit in a long queue because of Faree and, and Heine Adams at the time, and they both played great rugby at that time. Um, Fury obviously being the best nine in the world. Um, you know, and I just saw it as an opportunity to learn from the best. Um, so I made the decision to go to the Bulls and, um, you know, it, it, it's basically where my career started. I played nine leading up to that point and I could, you know, I could really not play nine with Fury, you know, playing in Heine Adams. So I then went to the wing, I moved to the wing and... Um, that's kind of how my career started off as, as a wing. And, you know, I never looked back from there. I, you know, I had countless amazing memories playing on the wing and, you know, obviously taking the field with guys like Vainant, Willifier, Victor Matfield, Bucky's, but, uh, um, yourself, Brian, um, you know, it was a massive honor and, and certainly one of the, the memories that I will cherish forever. Uh, it was it was really great. Uh, I don't think you'll remember this, Alki, but uh, you and Stefan Dipana, um, you know, in your first year at the Bulls, obviously super rugby training and during the deep end, you're freaking outrunning all of us, which really irritated me. 
um, I then sort of <laughs> took, it, took, took it back to my house and my then fiance, now wife, was there. And I was like, yes, I don't know if I'm going to take this 19-year-old that has a mohawk um, you know, and a uh, back to, to my wife and you know I'm like yes this like is uh, he's pretty sharp there so I gave, gave <laughs> you guys a, a, a Nando's salad um, but yeah it was special I think one of the beauties about rugby is the the camaraderie the friendships and it was really great to, to see someone like yourself come to the Bulls and you know the first training camp in George and you know running the the repeated sprint like you did I think your, your first call was like a freaking 749 or 849 you're all like what's this on what's this like all about but i think it was <laughs> it was great because it sort of pushed the rest of us and yeah i think there's always as you go on your rugby journey uh, in the professional era and you see these youngsters coming through and you know you're a guy that we got to know off the field as well which was which was pretty special uh you always brought a lot of energy and i think in any team you know, that is so so needed um and seeing how your career panned out i know you probably would have loved to play yeah, a few more tests with Springboks. I think we all be- believe you probably should have, not not just at you know at potentially wing, but more as scrum off. But yeah, it was um, it was good to to meet a young Francois Hochard, um and you know, see you dominating as as you did. Yeah, man, I really do appreciate those words. It's incredible how uh, the role the role that serendipity plays in everyone's careers, and I think even from a sporting perspective, um, yeah, it's it's amazing how it all works out in the end. So, uh, Brian, I just wanted to know, you you were named after some Manchester United legends, <laughs> you know, which is uh, which is not the coolest thing because you have a Liverpool fan, stoic, hardcore Liverpool fan in, uh, in Yanni. Uh, and then myself, unfortunately, I'm an Arsenal fan, you know, I've also seen my my really bad days. But anyway, uh, so you were named after after some legends, obviously. So what I wanted to know, um, who were your sporting heroes when you were growing up? Um, was it the, the legend that you were named after? Or was it, uh, you know, other people uh, in the in the rugby, you know, the rugby game? Or did you also look at, you know, other stars in other sporting codes? Yeah, so, I mean, as a, as a young boy, you know, uh, not that I was excluded from rugby or, you know, it wasn't really a big thing. So soccer was, was massive, um, you know, being named after Brian Robson, Gary Bailey. Manchester United was was a big go-to in our house, but as a youngster, I actually wanted to be the next Ultimate Warrior from the WWF or now WWE. Um, and me and my brother, I'm not quite sure uh, how young both Yanni and Oki are, but we used to have those box TVs, and you know, there used to be WWF coming on late at night. And me and my brother used to be Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior, um, and it was fascinating you know, seeing this very alternate type of what we'd actually known in South Africa. But yeah, no, that was a youngster. And then cricket was actually a really big thing. The 1992 Cricket World Cup where Jonty Rhodes had that very famous runner was, uh, you know, was, was, I played a bit of cricket as well in, in primary school. So I really enjoyed that. Thought I was the next you know, Jonty Rhodes. We never forget we had a, like an election at school in the 1994 democratic election time in South Africa where we like had to vote for like the best cricketer or the best, you know, player. And I, I voted for Johnny, Johnny, Johnny Rhodes. But yeah, 95 and, and that Springbok team, I, I wouldn't say there was one like particular person. That whole team was, was absolutely phenomenal. You know, I got, you know, got to meet Jonah Lomu, get his autograph. You know, he changed the game in so many ways. Became rugby's first global superstar in that 1995 sure. World Cup. 
Um, and then it was, you know, as, as I was progressing, you know, it was just noticing and, and witnessing greatness all around me, you know, at the Lions, to the Springboks, you know, and I, I was still playing scrum off, so you had the likes of a US Van Vesta, and then you had George Regan, who I tried to sort of model my game around. You know, he was a lot smaller, but, you know, his work rate, his communication was things that, you know, he used to his advantage. And I think that was, again, so there wasn't one particular person there wasn't like one guy I was thinking, oh, and that's my heroes. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, having those various role models from, you know, from different environments and having a fund family foundation where, you know, I, I really got taught the value of education, um, you know, discipline and, and things like that was incredibly crucial in my upbringing. And yeah, I thought, it was, you know, I always wanted to be the best. And you, know, you sort of looked at various, you know, the Tiger Wizards of the world, the Roger Federer's of the world, uh, the then Lance Armstrong's of the world before we all found out the reality and, and sort of model yourself, not purely from what you were doing on the field or on the court, but the manner in which you were portrayed off it, you know, the, the many humanitarian things that, that people did. So, I mean, it's, I know it's a very broad answer. I don't want to say there were no heroes. That group of 95 in totality was definitely a group that I inspired to. You know, Chester Williams breaking the mold, you know, being the only player of color in, in that 95 regular World Cup. So, yeah, it was it was brilliant. You know, but like the likes of James Small, yeah. Andre Joubert, you know, Joel Stransky, US Panavestas, and Hannes Stradov and Kurt Lisa. So it was, it was pretty epic, you know, 95 and getting to experience that. That '95 team was truly special. So at the time, I was uh, I was living in the in the township in uh, in the free in the free state. Uh, prior to that World Cup, the only thing we had known is soccer. You know, just soccer stars, right? After that World Cup, you know, we all got into it. We didn't even understand the rules. <laughs> you know, we uh, we hardly knew the teams that these guys played for. But obviously, that was like an amazing introduction for us. So we all started playing rugby, like, you know, in the streets or whatever. So it was pretty interesting. It was, uh, you know, it was truly a, a, a great team, a legendary team that we all ended up. Can I also say, again, so, I come from a very different background, uh, potentially to you. You know, I, I got exposed to rugby by my dad, got taken to games, was able to watch the TVs. What was it like in the townships, you know, in, in 95? You know, where, I mean, TV... I don't, I don't want to say it was unheard of, but, you know, did you go watch it abroad? You know, was there, like, you know, I think it was on Supersports, so you wouldn't even have got access on SABC or whatever. So how did it work? And I'm, I'm asking out of I curiosity think, because I can't relate. Yeah. So I'm going to try to remember this vividly because this is, like, what, almost like 20, is it 20-something years ago? So it was... Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think I think at the time SABC had, you know, rights to the game. We definitely didn't have, you know, super sport at all at the time. <laughs> Very few people had uh, super sport or DSTV in the, you know, in the township. So I think it was definitely on SABC. Um and what was interesting about it was obviously, you know, you know, you watch the game, you know, like I said, you don't really understand, you know, in the beginning you don't understand the rules, but you know, by the time you like around quarterfinals, I think you've gotten the hang of the game, right? Uh, and what started happening after every Springbok victory will then go out into like, you know, like a field uh, with our, you know, low, you know, low balls and we'll start just emulating the stars, you know? And the guy that, that, uh, that really, really stuck out was actually Chester, you know? So like, you know how like in soccer, when you play in soccer, 
you know, you use a name, right? So you'll be like, oh, Drogba, I'm Drogba, I'm, you know, you know, Henry or whatever the case might be. So we were all Chester. Now we must fight over Chester. <laughs> like no Ronaldo, the, the, the best scorer of all time. No, 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 definitely Ronaldo. Ronaldo obviously is a hero of mine. Uh, I'm more of a fan of the original Ronaldo, you know, Brazilian Ronaldo, you know? Pele. The Portuguese Ronaldo is also pretty dope. You know, and, uh, and yeah, shout out to Pelo too, you know. So, yeah, it was amazing, man. It was amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. So, eventually, we all got into it. The reason I ask is, again, you know, I tell, tell the story about the sick leases of the world, the Makazores of Pimpi. You know, I really got given a very different upbringing. Um, you know, two people from the rural communities or the townships that really had no potential future. Um, you know, rugby was the furthest thing from their mind. And, you know, obviously 2007 was incredibly impactful off the field for me, you know, seeing what rugby meant on the other side, uh, being at play and then going to the rural townships in the Eastern Cape. But, you know, back then, it, I think it was just a very different. It's, it's great to get that insight because you know, Jesse Williams, you know, got into, he, he actually was like the poster boy, but then he, I don't even remember, but he got injured and only got to come back after the, I think it was the Canada game where we had that massive brawl and punch up and Peter Hendricks got, got red carded and, and sent home. So Chester was actually initially not even in, you know, this, he was, but he got injured and he wasn't going to go. And then you know, through that, he became, you know, the status symbol. And, you know, in you know, in his passing, you know, a, a few years ago now was, was really someone that, you know, brought the true South Africa to life. And it's, it's great to hear that there was a correlation or, or, or a way of, relating to rugby through, you know, through him. For, for me, you know, all of them were heroes. You know, I didn't gravitate towards Chester Williams just because of the color of his skin. But for you know, those listening, I think just understanding the history of South Africa, you know, a lot of the people of color actually didn't even want to support the Springboks. You know, they wanted to support the All Blacks. They wanted to, you know, not, you know, it was, rugby was seen as an oppressionistic environment. And if it wasn't for Nelson Mandela, um, you know, the Springbok as a symbol, you know, would have potentially been lost uh, in, in 95. Yeah, yeah. And it was amazing to see the power of sport you know, and how that changed mindsets, you know, and really united a nation in, in such a powerful way. Definitely. Okay. So, uh, Brian, do you remember your, obviously you remember your professional debut, but do you remember that that moment, like how it felt like, you know, maybe like the, the couple of hours leading, you know, up to it. The night before, did you even sleep? You know, did you even eat? <laughs> Do you remember your your debut? How was that, how was that moment for you? I'm sure it was, you know, it was like something, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's made out of a fairy tale, right? It was freezing. It was <laughs> so cold. Like, I never, I'd obviously never been, I'd been to New Zealand and... America, literally that same year, um, but this was sort of my first time ever to the UK, and it's always difficult trying to put into words the emotions, the thoughts running through your heads because it just it goes by so quickly. And for us, like I said earlier, you know, John and Brayton Pulser both got injured at the same time, so myself and Jacques Ferry, you know, another guy that yeah, you know, walked a long way within my rugby career and life with were the two replacements on the bench. Rock was going to go on his wing and I was going to be for the centers. And now all of a sudden, I'd never really played wing before for Super Rugby, Curry Cup, nothing. 
and now I was going to go on on the wing and was sort of warming up, but like literally my fingers were frozen. I couldn't feel my toes. It was that cold. It was like <laughs> two degrees. We were getting absolutely pummeled. Like you could see it, you know, when you see those shots of like the forwards at scrum time and like just this steam coming off them. And I was like, you're so keen, ready to get on. You know, there's like nine minutes left. You know, you, you sort of a little bit disheartened because you've now waited so long and the team's getting beaten. And you obviously just want to go on and make a difference and you want to be this energetic guy that you know really positively impacts the, the way the game's going. And I'm like sort of about to run on and the team manager calls me back and I'm like, it's another, another minute of wasted time that I'm not going to get an opportunity. And he says, no, no, you're still running on. You've just got to take the beanie off your head. <laughs> um, it, 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 was that, it was that cold. And I think, I tell everyone, like I am so grateful honored and privileged to have had so many incredible memories and moments that I could take with me through my rugby career and everyone asked me what is the best moment is it winning a rugby world cup is it you know beating the Reds 92-3 in a super rugby game to you know qualify for a home final beating the Lions representing your country 100 times Mm -hmm. I tell people for me looking back at the 15, 16 years I was involved, you know, in a professional perspective in the game, that defining moment on the 24th of November, 2004, getting to represent my country for the first time, mm. the manner in which I then was able to score a trial with my first touch of the ball in international rugby against the then world champions, announce myself on the international stage, but then also understand the privilege, the honor and the responsibility that comes with representing your country and mm-hmm. tasting that for the first time and knowing what it felt like made me never, ever want to let go of it. And I think it became incredibly important for me to sort of bottle up that feeling, to know that opportunity and for the rest of my way forward to never take what I'm doing for granted, but to make sure that I want to continue doing it for as long as possible. And, you know, I didn't just want to be a flash in the pan, you know, one year wonder. I wanted to play mm-hmm. 10, 20, 50 games in my country, potentially become the first player of color to play a hundred games. And I think it was that first moment. If I look back at my career, that literally kept the fire lit because it lighted a fire that mm-hmm. I never, ever wanted to let go. So yeah, it, it was pretty special. My first Jersey was handed to me by Ernie Al's, you know, who is a legend in his own right in you know, in England. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot I can recall. I'd, I don't know how I'd actually organize it like this because like, I had no clue, but I'd actually flown my whole family over from South Africa. So my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother were in the stands when I, when I made my debut. And it was purely by chance. You know, I'd just taken a gamble. Uh, London was the easiest route because then they wouldn't have to like connect to Dublin or connect to Edinburgh. It was like, you go straight from Johannesburg to, to London. And yeah, it was incredible how it all worked out. And yeah, that moment, yeah, best ever. Amazing, amazing. Brian, how's it going? Yeah, Yanni, what's happening? <laughs> uh, excellent, mate. Um, listen, I just wanted to say that, you know, hearing your story is truly amazing. And, um, you know, all these nuances and the way everything worked out, um, you know, you could almost say truly is written in the stars. Um, the way you scored in your debut, the way, you know, Ernie House uh, handed you the jersey, the way your family was there. It's honestly, truly incredible. And I think that, you know, God is with you. It's been written in the stars and the legacy definitely, you know, uh, lives lives very strong. Thanks, Jenny. That's, uh, that's pretty, pretty special. Thanks for that.
Yeah, yeah, for real, man. I mean, like, I'm a little bit younger than than the grandfather in the group, Nick. Um, <laughs> and also a little younger than Francois. But what I will say is, like, uh, in my time, you were definitely, like, the poster boy for all the kids. And I think what was cool was we always had the view that rugby was very, like... Um, how can you say, you know, like you had to be the typical strong man and the typical, you know, bad boy crashing into tackles, all that kind of stuff. And you sort of had this like football-esque vibe, you know. Um, swag. Yeah, swag. You had swag. You had the football-esque vibe, you know, the, the very like, uh, you know, like you could dribble, which, yes, we, di- we did see, but it was it was definitely unique, especially also like for South Africa, you know, it was almost like a Terry on Revive or something just out there, you know, out the box. And I think after that, then Franco happened and he was also a superstar and, you know, everyone loved him and started having uh, mullets. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> <laughs> you know all the all the oaks used to wear their mullets and then the hats underneath anyway it's ridiculous but brian just just getting into a few a few of my questions um so like you said you obviously made your your debut in 2005 and that was amazing you scored on your debut and and all those things worked out with regards to you know winning a world cup what would you say is the absolute high like in that whole moment that whole should we say bubble what was the high yeah, so not to correct you as well i made my debut in 2004 not 2005 i was already scoring tries in in 2005 okay okay <laughs> <laughs> lots of them yeah so i think yanni a lot of people ask about that 2007 journey and, and how we got there and i'm extremely grateful you know someone like jake white who literally picked me up out of obscurity and sort of gave me an opportunity, which, yes, I think grabbed with both hands. And I do get asked quite a bit, you know, who's the best coach you've ever played under? Um, and then I said to everyone, well, what do you term best? Because best is a very subjective word. Is it winning a World Cup? Is it beat like Jake White did? Is it beating the All Blacks in New Zealand twice like Peter de Villiers did, you know, winning a Brazil Knight Lions to on its way? Is it like Heineken Mayer who became the first coach from South Africa to win a super rugby competition. Um, you know, so it's, it's very subjective, but it was, you know, that journey with Jake and, and John Smith in that 2007 group was, yeah, it was something extremely special where, you know, we're still in a WhatsApp group together and it was that whole journey. It was literally from going from the depths of disaster in 2006, where we lost 49-0 against Australia in Brisbane to galvanizing as a team to, never losing the steadfast commitment and foundations that we had as a team and as players to fully believe. And even in the build-up to, you know, to that 2007 tournament, we we really had a good two-game series against England. Uh, we beat them pretty well in Bloemfontein and you know, went on convincingly in Pretoria the following week. I then got injured, so I missed the whole of that Tri-Nations. But Jake also took you know, a sort of second-string group to, to New Zealand so that we could actually prepare for, you know, for that World Cup. We then had a massive game against Namibia, which I then still didn't play. We went over and played Connacht. I'm trying to think who we played. We had like two games um, that didn't really go well. We, we did well against Scotland. So even our preparation, but we, we literally had a camp, I think a week before going over to France. And we had this journey, you know, walking. John Smith made us walk like 10 kilometers on a beach in the south coast of, of KwaZulu-Natal, which <laughs> I, I literally am still extremely negative about. But we sort of went on this journey um, and we had guys like us and, you know, explaining 95, you know, Albert van der Berg and, and Bobby explaining 
99 and the disappointment of you know that Stephen Larkin drop kick uh, that kicked us out and then we had the guys that were involved in 2003 and the absolute disaster that was Stahl drop getting kicked out in the quarterfinals and you know, we had all these nuggets of information that we then said okay well what are we going to do to make sure we win this World Cup and you know, John just said the words so aptly he said listen whatever we've gone through when we put foot in France when we get off that plane we arrive like we are champions. And I think that whole tournament, you know, from landing in Paris, and we had luck along the way. Uh, you know, you have to be good for, for a few weeks, but a few games, a few moments. You know, we could have lost to Tonga. J.P. Peterson's tackle on the Fijian lock in that, in that quarterfinal where New Zealand and Australia had already got knocked out. That foot in touch by um, Mark Quaito, Donnie so there, there were moments, but I think for us it was... And everyone also asks, like, what's it like winning a World Cup? When that final whistle mm. goes, the first thing is like pure relief because you've dedicated, sacrificed, worked your ass off, um, you know, some for four years, some for eight years, some like Osteran for, for 12 years, you know, to get to that point. And knowing that you've done it with a band of brothers, being able to embrace each other in pure relief because at that, at that moment in time when... You know, that final whistle went, you know, you see John Smith trumpet to his knees and you know, shaking the referee's hand. And yeah, it's, it was it was epic. It was absolutely epic. But it was a, a four-year journey of strategically sound decisions by Jake White, going through the highs, learning so much more about each other in the lows, galvanizing in those periods, you know, to then, you know, to have when we had to dig deep, we knew that there were elements that we could do it. And Jake was extremely, you know, out of the box when he brought someone like Eddie Jones in, you know, two months before that World Cup. So it was that strategic build-up. And, you know, it's sad that, you know, I've only been to one World Cup final because I really believe, you know, even 2011 where we got kicked out in, you know, in, in the quarterfinals, which should never have happened. But in 2015, we were two points away from beating the All Blacks. And even though Japan had happened, there was just, so much going for us. So, yeah, I think that that pure moment of relief and looking then back at the journey and seeing the sacrifice, seeing the effort, seeing the you know the real commitment and desire put in to get to that point is like mm-hmm. anything in life. Uh, you know, if you want to become successful, uh, for me, it's sort of three key pillars: um, hard work, sacrifice, and discipline. And if you don't have those three, you know, I don't care you know how excited you are, how positive you are. If you're not willing to put in the hard yards, you know, it's going to be really tough to come out at the top. Yeah. So, Brian, that's amazing. What I, you know, what I really took away from what you said is your real high is looking back at the, the special moments collectively. And, you know, the reality of the work they need to put in, the pillars that you set in your life to become successful. Um, so, so just real quick before we head on to the business sector, what would you say you know, your legacy in rugby and South African sports is overall? Oh. <laughs> I almost want to say it's, it's not for me to say. Um, I think when I, and like I said earlier, when I got the opportunity to represent my country for the first time and having seen the power that's played in my life as a 12-year-old boy, having never experienced the game of rugby before, inspiring me to take up the game, you know, to then 12 years later do the same, and drive, you know, on the trophy tour through the rural townships in the Eastern Cape and see, you know, young black kids in, in the rural areas running a kilometer or two barefoot behind the bus, you know, just to get a glimpse of their heroes, to get a glimpse of hope. 
you know, I sort of wanted to to live in the moment, sort of that carpe diem way of living, um, you know, working incredibly hard, you know, sacrificing, but, you know, living in the moment. And I think, you know, I tell a lot of athletes, you know, given that I'm now in the transition period is, and, you know, we, we were extremely grateful in terms of the bond we had at the Bulls, um, is that I always try to make rugby, or understand that rugby was an incredibly important and big part of my life, but that it wasn't my life. And you know, that basically comes from my beginnings. And I think in the transition period, where a lot of athletes struggle, um, is you lose your identity. And I think for me, I didn't want to lose my identity. I think I related to black people, white people, colored people, Indian people. I didn't see myself as a player of color. I didn't see myself as a quoted player because I couldn't. I got given a great upbringing, got given great education. So so my legacy was about leaving the jersey in a better place than what I received it. And I know that is something a lot of people say, but for me, it's not just the jersey. You know, It's the, the manner in which you leave the game. You know, How are you inspiring? How are you giving back? How are you allowing young boys and girls to dream of creating themselves a platform to succeed and not just become rugby players, you know, becoming doctors and doing my philanthropic and humanitarian work and you know, doing some stuff with Loris, the Loris Academy, I think that has been you know, so much more important because, yes, it's been great to contribute. And you know, Heine Kamei actually had a saying that if you want to be number one, continuously train as though you're number two. And I think for me, it was forever and ongoing. I didn't ever want to believe that I'd, I'd, I'd arrive. And I really almost wanted to only judge myself when I eventually hung up my boots. And you know, then you can look back and reflect and, now, Francois knows one of our coaches, Johan van Kran, who, who sort of always had the saying that memories are all we have. And I just wanted to make sure that I leave the game with as many beautiful and amazing memories as possible. And I'd like to think, you know, I've, I've done that to the best possible. Um, I've, I've yet to meet any professional athlete who doesn't have any regrets. I know we all, like, you, know, you say fluffy things when you retire, but there are moments in your career where you're not doing, you know, what you potentially can look in the mirror and, and be proud of in terms of your performances. And, you know, there are little tidbits of regret. I don't regret my career. I would do it over in a, in a heartbeat. But I think it's looking back and knowing that the memories I take with me, um, not just on the field and hopefully having left the jersey specifically in a better place, but having left the game in a better place. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's the hardest decision that professional athletes have to make to call it quits to move on to the next phase of your life. But, um, you know, looking back now, I, I'm so grateful that I get to take so many amazing memories with, and hopefully, having left, uh, you know, my own footprint uh, on the game. Amazing, Brian. You know, I think the the main takeaway I think for the listeners will definitely be that your legacy, you know, definitely has a footprint. And the most amazing part is that hearing from you, it's not just in the past; it's continuing. You know, your goal is so much bigger than just what, hap- what happened in your sport career, you know. And, and what I would truly say is you are truly Africa-made. So, amazing. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Just to add on to that, I think why so many sportsmen and in particular rugby players suffer from depression, you know, once they finish the game is, you know, like Brian said, it shouldn't be your be-all and end-all and everything, your whole world. Because once you stop playing, that whole world falls apart. Um, there's so many amazing campaigns, especially in, in, you know, in the premiership about mental, you know, health and mental awareness. 
Um, they give you all these numbers and, and people to speak to. I think it's massively important because, you know, if that is your everything, your f all your friends are involved in the game, which is amazing. But the day that you finish, those things all fall apart. You know, you're not the man anymore. Um, you don't you don't play in front of these amazing crowds. So I think your ego takes a massive shock, and then you having to go into this strange and unknown world where you got to go sit behind a desk or do a certain job that you know you didn't particularly study for. You don't really like. Whereas if you focus on your brand and have that balance, you can start investing and start a business, you know, while you are still playing rugby. And something most important, I think it's something that you, you can start something that you love. And that's a massive difference where you give it enough attention, you can go into kind of a, I call it a soft landing kind of merge into life after rugby and you'll be 100% fine. Yeah, I became a, a Springbok earning 100,000 Rand a year, Francois, so it's, it's really difficult. I mean, you wanted 100,000 Rand at Paul Riss, um, you know, when you're in matrix. So, you know, times, times are, are, are very, very different. Um, and it, it's great to have seen, you know, the game grow and continue growing from a financial perspective. I definitely think we are so much far ahead now, you know, than we were when I started playing, um, you know, guys coming out of school and, getting really big contracts, getting offers to go overseas, which, you know, when I was you know, sort of 1920 was, was unheard of. I think Jakub van Avestaisen, you know, was one of the first players who went into Japan and everyone was like, they're calling him crazy. So it's, it's difficult to say, you know, there's, you know, there's various monetary things flying around, you know, your, your salary sometimes gets splurged in the newspaper. So when I signed up to Lon, you know, like, no, Brian is now, and they always translated euros to rands and when the euro is doing well, it's fine. And when the euro is doing, Okay, it's still fine, but it's I mean, you know, some top players at the moment can probably you know get in excess of a million euros a year potentially. I I actually have no idea. I mean, you probably could, could relate more. Um, you know, the likes of someone like myself and and Jacques Ferry, you know, probably broke the mold a bit in South Africa. Um, you know, the Springbok team under John Smith, you know, went through this whole thing of fighting for the players' image rights with the then Sarpa, you know, now my players, where you know SA Rugby is you know didn't just look contractually at players, but what they were doing from a image right perspective. And, and I'll never forget, like we, we sort of fought for this thing. And in the first year, we sort of sat in, in the Springbok team room and we said at, at the hotel and we said like the legacy we're going to leave is we're actually not going to, we're not going to be a given disadvantage. And we literally, I'll never forget the first year that Saru agreed, SRA Rugby Union agreed to categorize Sarpa or the image rights for players, there was zero rand given, um, you know, and that has now like ca categorically changed, um, you know, the amount of money that that. So, yeah, there, there's various forms of legacy. I, again, it's difficult. I, I mean, you can look after yourself. You know, rugby is an incredible sport. I think nowadays, if you look after your money really well and you, know, you make wise investments, which is always difficult, um, you know, it, it's a lot easier. But you know, that being said, if you if you become accustomed to a certain way of life, and I think the biggest thing rugby players particularly don't understand is, you know, when you leave the game, uh, you almost come out into the business world as a young 19-year-old. You're inexperienced. You know, a 16-year-long rugby career or CV means absolutely nothing in the business world. You know, if you can't create a PowerPoint presentation or understand, you know, what, what a budget looks like and, and read financial statements and reports. If you don't know how to, to do an Excel spreadsheet, 
Um, you know, and, and you can't talk the term. I, I joke around with everyone. You know, when I retired in in 2018, and well, I created a digital sports marketing agency, and you know, I've now gone into into the fintech space. You know, having to learn that MVP isn't most valuable player, but rather you know, minimum viable minimum viable product. And you, know, you sit in these in these boardrooms, and you know, across you know, from senior level executives, and you you learn all these TLAs. Um, Francois, which means three-letter acronyms. Um, you know, you, you start writing them down, and, you know, you start writing them down and learning because you know you, you're just so inexperienced. And you know, the difficulty is, and I tell everyone, like everyone says, uh, you got to find balance. You got to find, you know, there, and there is definitely a, a ability to educate yourself. You know, find a different passion. You know, work and study and do things. And, and I'm all for that. But I was also of the opinion that I wanted to be the best in the world. And I unfortunately didn't have balance because that meant that I then put every waking minute of trying to find out what I need to do to be the best rugby player for the best wing in the world. Um, yes, there is time to play golf. Yes, there is time to have fun. But balance was unheard of because I just wanted to be the best. And again, you know, those that do, and it is plenty unhealthy. I'll, I'll be the first to admit. But it's learning again. There's a lot of skills along the way. Um, I'll also openly admit that I made some horrible financial decisions, you know, signing a, a retirement, two retirement annuities when I was 21 years old uh, was one of the biggest, one of the stupidest decisions I ever made. You know, when, when rugby finished and you could take a yearly increase of 10%, you know, all of a sudden I'm not able to pay you know, two separate RAs, you know, when I'm done because you know, where do you all of a sudden get 20,000 Rand from um, you know, to, to pay that over and above your, your living expenses and you, you're not earning the you know, the wages of a, of a CEO. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of principles. Um, balance is something I think we should all strive towards. With success, unfortunately, you know, balance becomes really negotiable, if I, if I can call it that. I definitely believe there is space to learn more about yourself, more about your passions. You know, you look at someone as inconspicuous as Bucky's Puerto, everyone, you know, was just this, thought of this number four lock. We got real into, you know, the game, the gaming industry at, you know, at a young age. It's something he was extremely fond of something you know you really find a passion to and, and has done extremely well in, in that field posted so it's about trying to find a passion um you know I, I trust is always a very difficult thing because if you are naive if you don't understand how to you know read spreadsheets or or, or read you know various different forms of finances uh you're always you know an, an easy target and and there are many sharks out there that you know promise you the world uh and you know take your money and you know i've had to learn many a time the hard way um, that, yeah, you potentially need to restart, you know, quite a bit. Brian, so as a player, what should your management look like, your management team look like? We look at uh, a series on, on Netflix called Ballers and um, how agents and managers take advantage of, of their players and, and how they virtually end up with, with nothing, you know, some of them end up in big trouble. So, you know, obviously times change and, and in, in the NFL there's, you know, a lot more money involved. But according to you, what would your ideal team look like? Yeah, Francis, you talk about a brand. You know, I look at someone like Bobby Skinsett who brand-wise changed rugby in South Africa. Um, when we were winning a Rugby World Cup in France in 2007, I was worried about how many friend requests I was getting on Facebook. And I was like, why am I not getting to a thousand? <laughs> and now all of a sudden social media has changed that. So there's these various different elements of building a brand. Um, and I think it's about finding what works for you. Uh, you know, if you're not 
the best in something. So if you haven't studied law, you know, if you don't know how to work with finances or investments, um, if you do have a very big social media presence on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, so it's, it's difficult to say. I think each and everybody's needs would be different. You know, someone like Skullberger has never, ever been on social media. You know, so why would he need someone to run his social media profile? And I think it's looking at what your needs and necessities are. I think, and again, I say trust is so difficult. You know, trying to find those closest to you that can give you the appropriate critique because at the end of the day, rugby should remain, or the sport you're doing, should remain the main focus point. So what are you doing and how are you putting things and people in place to make sure that you're continually the best rugby player that you can be? Um, distractions are unfortunately a part and parcel of life, not just professional sports. So you want to look at someone and... I almost want to say the less you have, the better. So if you have an agent that has your best interest at heart, which is also always a very touchy subject, but again, you know, an agent taking 10 to 20% of your salary, if you're worth, and that's probably one of the things that I forget, if you're worth a million rand, and now all of a sudden agents taking 20%, 200,000 of that, um, you know, you're actually then only worth 800,000. So I know, I know the, the, that works differently. The agent's fees and commission work differently going overseas. But, you know, do you have a sliding scale? You know, if I'm a brand and I know that I'm worth 500,000, you know, should I be giving an agent 10 to 15% of that? Um, or should I be on a sliding scale that anything over 500,000, he gets a 5% cut of everything over 750, he gets a 10% cut of everything over 10, a million, you know, he gets 12% cut of, you know, and if he, if they can bring in 2 million rand and they work extremely hard for it, you know, then they can get 50% or 40%, whatever that might be. So I think we're, you know, because we are just so gullible, uh, we just don't have all the knowledge and we, you know, we're we not experienced in, in the various spaces. I think having a good lawyer um, is, is a good thing. Affording a good lawyer is another thing because good lawyers are extremely pricey and expensive. If social media is your thing, you know, having, you know, do you do it well enough that it doesn't take away your focus financially? Um, you know, do you understand the markets, the, the stock exchange, you know, can you trade, can you do all these other things? So it's difficult mm -hmm. to say it's your, you know, if, if you want to get into game, you know, wild game, like Bucky's got into, you know, you know who, who was doing that? So a difficult one. Um, I really do believe less is more. And if you can have someone managing that so that you can fully still concentrate at being the best, um, because that gives you your longevity, you know, that is then your ability to, to stretch your career for as long as possible. I definitely think um, it's having a fine balance between, you know, having a big social media presence um, on the likes of Instagram, Twitter, um, LinkedIn, where you can use social media as an athlete to grow your brand, first of all, and then through growing your brand, you can launch business, you know, your business of interest where, you know, you might do a clothing brand or a nutrition brand or something like that but also having that balance to still focus on rugby you know equally as much because the saying goes let the main thing stay the main thing and in this case obviously rugby being the main thing you know having that balance between you know having that presence and building your brand building your businesses but also being able to focus on your career and 
you know, keep on playing well and keep on performing on the field. But so on the other side, you know, grow your businesses so that one day when you do retire, that you have a soft landing into, you know, into the real world, into the business world, and you don't have to start from scratch and start over. I was just about to say that, Francois. <laughs> one of my favorite phrases, you know, keep the main thing the main thing. But while you're doing that, I think you obviously have to have uh, an eye on the future, you know, because the main thing, which is rugby or sport uh, right now, you know, 10 years down the line, it won't be the main thing for you. So whatever investments that you're making or ventures that you're getting into, it's almost like you have to have, a, you know, keep one one, uh, one hand on that, right? And uh, an eye on that and make sure that that also gets taken care of because otherwise you just end up losing, you know, a whole lot of money and, you know, the headache and the heartache from that possibly affects the main thing. So it's, a, it's an interesting one from a balanced perspective. So I have uh, just, I think, two questions uh, for you, Brian, uh, and it's, it's still around money. Um, you know, I mean, I think all of us here, and I'll speak for myself and my partners, you know, we all love, we're all about getting the bag, you know, um, you know, getting your getting your money up. You know, that's what makes the world go around. Right. So I just wanted to find out. Uh, I'm sure you've been part of a million negotiations. Right. Uh, or rather, maybe your agents or managers. Uh, what would you say is a secret behind coming out of these negotiations with uh, with the dub like you know, you, you've won, you know, that, uh, that particular negotiation, because I'm sure there's, there's quite a bit of, you know, sort of, uh, agreements that you have to, um, you know, essentially like establish whether it's with clubs or with brands or even like with, uh, organizations like, you know, the Loris, uh, sports awards or whatever, what's your tactic when you're negotiating with, uh, you know, with these people? Knowledge is power that can be in various forms. And, you know, when I say knowledge, are you, are you reading? Are you understanding the situation environment you're in? Are you keeping your ear to the ground? Uh, do you understand reading a contract and, and a small and fine print? So knowledge is, is power. Um, knowledge also then potentially gives you the upper hand um, around the negotiating table. And, you know, I've made some horrible decisions because I thought I was, I thought I knew more um, than what I should have known. And you know, I wasn't prepared to find out a little bit more. You know, I've made some stupid investments you know, because I wasn't able to just dig a little bit deeper. So knowledge is power. And when you go in with a wealth of wisdom, not only can you be more impactful and your presence can potentially be more powerful, but you can walk away making a wiser decision. So knowledge is power. Awesome, awesome. I, I'm a big believer in... Um, you know, in the, in the power behind books, you know, they say that uh, most of the, the world's secrets are actually hidden, you know, between the pages of books. So I'm, a, I'm an obsessive reader. I read about three books at a time. And that's that's because even if you don't have, you know, a college education or whatever, but like, you know, there's there's a lot that you can teach yourself just being obsessed with, uh, you know, a particular subject matter. That's actually what I did. You know, I dropped I dropped out of UCT. I was studying at UCT trying to get a, you know, finance degree, but I dropped out, you know, um, and I just ended up just teaching myself. And that's usually just through books and through people, learning through people. So I just wanted to know, you know, so in, uh, you know, like you were talking about Ronaldo earlier, um, you know, Ronaldo is part of an elite, you know, group, you know, the Pantheon, right? That that includes uh, Michael Jordan, 
Tiger Woods. You know, I think I read, you know, Roger Federer is also on his way to joining, you know, this group. So these are guys that have become billionaires, you know, whether it's through, you know, just what they've earned in their career or just after, you know, retiring and their ventures, etc. You know, do you do you think that, you know, we'll see an African athlete become a billionaire? You know, um, I know it's a it's a random question, but do you think that it could be it could happen? And, you know, and how 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 would that happen? You know, what would need to be, uh, you know, the right sort of like environment to ensure that, you know, you know, our athletes also become billionaires. I mean, why not? Are you, are you saying dollar billionaires or, or rand billionaires? <laughs> massive, massive difference. <laughs> okay, let's keep it. Let's keep it in rands for now. You know, let's keep it in rands for now. Rand billionaire. <laughs> I would think Ernie Els would have been pretty close. Um, to be brutally honest, the amount of golf courses he's designed, uh, the tournaments he's won. Gary and Gary So from from a rand perspective, you know, I reckon there they would be be a few. Some like uh, Didier Drogba, who you mentioned earlier. You know, in terms of what he. In terms of pure rands, uh, you know, I think they would have plenty been close. Yeah, I think, you know, dollars-wise, you know, rugby, I'd love to say it would. I, I can't see any athlete from rugby being able to, you know, get remotely close to to a dollar billionaire. Um, soccer, I definitely think there you know, are potential. I, I don't really watch a lot of African soccer, so I don't, I can't really honestly comment on that. Golf is potentially something where, you know, there is an easier entry point into that, just purely from a rand perspective. I don't think from a dollar perspective. I think we've got some great athletes, like the track and field athletes that, you know, could potentially go on and, you know, and do potentially become the next Usain Bolt or, or something like that. So, yeah, I, I, I would love to, though. I would love to see an African dollar billionaire from the sporting perspective, the sporting realm. It will take an extreme amount of, of hard work and, and effort. But you know, like Adidas says, impossible is nothing. Truly. And, you know, you're in the fintech space. Um, you know, fintech companies have known to, uh, to scale, you know, to list on the stock exchange, you know, and then the directors and the founders become billionaires. So maybe it's you, brother. Don't leave yourself out of the equation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're actually going, we're actually, you know, sort of talking about a, a funding round at the moment and, you know, talking to a couple of impact funds and, and VCs from around the world. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting space. It's it's a really, really good space. You know, we're still very early stage, you know, we we're not even remotely close to, to breaking even. So um, who knows one day, um, extremely exciting. And, and I'm in the early wage access environment, which is a, a really great financial inclusion space, which, you know, we're extremely excited about. So yeah, who knows? There is potential. Um, you know, we, we wouldn't mind a couple of a uh, couple of dollar or pound investments uh, over the next year or two. I'm sure that's coming. Uh, just to wrap up a few questions before we run out of time, what advice would you give people that's trying to make it big on the continent in their various sports? Oh, Francis, I think COVID has thrown a massive span in their work um, in the works at the moment. Um, you know, we've got a, a lot of overseas-based interests outside of the African content, I think it's, it's a difficult question because there's just so many intricate parts uh, that have to go with it. You know, there is the hard work, dedication, and commitment or sacrifice that I, that I said earlier, but you need, unfortunately, a bit of luck along the way. You know, I wouldn't have been able to get to where I got to if the coaches hadn't selected me. So, 
I definitely think those, you know, those three key pillars of, you know, hard work, dedication and sacrifice are non-negotiable. You know, if you want to, want to be a success at anything, um, you know, from African content perspective, it's, it's, it's going to be a push, but to never lose the self-belief. I mean, you know, I had teachers at school who told me or dropped me from a team because I they just didn't believe I was good enough. Um, so potentially surrounding yourself with people that, you know, believe in you, uh, would support you. Being realistic, I think, is, is a real because you know, so many people have goals and dreams and ambitions. You know, do you do you tangibly plan, put an action plan in place about how to get to that goal? You know, do you have daily, weekly, monthly, yearly goals to slowly really but progress it to that point? So hard work, sacrifice and you know, and, and dedication, you know, three key pillars, but need the you know the bounce of a ball and you need a, a bit of luck along the way um mm-hmm. and being able to you know if you can appropriately judge um in terms of understanding you know if it is a reality or not and, and putting the putting action points into place to make the, the plan you know hopefully come to reality amazing brian thanks so much for your time man it, uh, it's uh it's generally an honor we really appreciate the fact that you made the time uh, and I just, you know, just closing remarks from uh, myself and the team, you know, you've inspired millions, you know, over the years. And I think you will continue to inspire millions through your philanthropic work. But I think it's also important that, you know, these kids that that, that look up to like sports stars are also able to see someone like you go into the world of business and actually do really great. You know, so I've read up on your guys uh, uh, company. And I do believe that, you know, uh, we will see this company on uh, on the JSE, if not the NASDAQ, you know, one day. Sorry, which one? I've, I've got a few. Oh, 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 okay. I need to clarify. The FinTech one has got a lot of legs. Matchkit, we, we're growing nicely and organically. Uh, but yeah, FinTech. And to be honest, uh, Nick, anything anything financial at the moment, if it's not tech-driven, it's archaic. So. 100%. I'm not going to quite put out a tweet like Elon Musk. <laughs> well, um, I yeah. don't think it will it will jump like it did. But yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's been been great making the transition period. Absolutely brilliant to be talking to you guys. Really appreciate the you know, the the opportunity and and the honor of being your first guest. And you know, looking forward to seeing you know how African made goes from strength to strength. And you know, good luck with Power Athletics as well. You know, looking forward to hopefully hearing some some brilliant success stories you know from you guys as well. Seeing Francois with his top off on, you know, supercars a lot more. <laughs> he's our guy. He's uh, he's taking the swag, the swag vibes to the next level in rugby. You know what I mean? I mean, someone's got to represent. You know, he's always been a pioneer ahead of the pack. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Thanks so much, brother. Uh, so yeah, for everyone out there, thanks so much for listening. So that's myself. Uh, Yanni and Francois just hosting uh, Africa Made with our amazing and legendary guest, Brian Habana. Uh, obviously, you know, make sure that you follow us on uh, social media. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, follow Dow Athletics, Dow with the T-A-U, Athletics. Uh, yeah, and, you know, tell everyone, tell your mama, tell your grandma, tell your papa, tell your girl, you know, tell everybody. Let's, let's follow Dow. Brian, thanks so much, brother. All the best. Thank you, Brian. Be be blessed. Cool. Cheers, brother. Amazing. Thank you.